We don't have to start. Oh, that's okay. I wasn't thinking of you at all. Eat the mouse. Okay, let's start. How are we thinking? I'm going to keep asking you this. How are you feeling about Pope these days? Is that an ironic love him or? Is <laughs> it an ironic? No, no, I love him. Heard. <laughs> okay, good. Other people? I like him more the more I get used to him. Yeah. And I feel like the reverse is kind of true with Dryden. Really? Yeah. Um, did you find Dryden? Why, why was the reverse true of Dryden? Uh, excuse the pun, I found him fly. <laughs> um, did you find him priggish? Prig with a G, Prigish. Um, a prig is someone who's sort of um, huffy and self-righteous about um, minor and silly things. Yeah, I, I found that he took himself seriously. Okay, um, maybe as you got later on, maybe as you get later in Dryden's career, also you may feel that as he's getting politically more upset. I think he's. A, I wonder if you felt that way. I'm just going to say I wonder. I'm not going to ask whether you felt that way about his prose. Um, so why are you liking Pope more as you read him more? I couldn't say. I don't know. Really? Okay, that's interesting. It's it's worth trying to figure it out. Um, it partly. What do other people think? Yes, no, indifferent. Yeah. So, I think that um, as I read him and I get used to, and as you point out, the really clever and witty things that he is baking into his mind. And as I discover them on my own, I feel like I, it deepens my appreciation for his genius and his greatness. And also his, his poems, as well as being really intelligent and clever and witty, and they're also extremely moving. Yeah. So the combination just makes me really like all of them. Yeah, the range is pretty amazing. I mean, Dryden's range is also pretty amazing, but Pope's might in some ways be more amazing. Um, the range between something like Eloise and Abelard and some of the satires. He's he's never, although he gets a little bit dirty in um, some of the stuff we read uh, for today, um, he's never um, simply out for shock value. Um, Dryden is sometimes Rochester and Oldham and people like that are a lot. Um, Pope will never do anything simply for shock value. Um, he's also, I think, remember just keep remembering um, the, those lines of Swift and the verses on the death of Dr. Swift, that Swift, that Pope can do in one couplet what takes Swift six. Um, he's amazingly compressed in his cleverness and his wit without ever losing clarity, um, which, is a, which is a really hard thing to do. If any of you, and I'm sure many of you do, if any of you tweet on Twitter, um, you could learn a lot from Pope. Um, if you could, if you could put as much into 140 characters as he can put into 140 characters, um, that would be a lot. In fact, uh, you know, there is a Dr. Johnson, um, at Dr. Johnson. Do people know about this? You can look up at Dr. Johnson and, um, this person puts in Johnsonian, um, epigrams, um, tweets Johnsonian epigrams now and then. But Johnson's sentences tend to be very long and, um, this person cheats and you have to read three or four tweets in a row. Um, Pope, you wouldn't have to do that. Um, it's, it's really something what Pope can get into. Um, a couplet. Um, that's, as I say, that's the thing that, that Swift is pointing out. Um, you might also be a little bit more used to um, him as a personality. You might be getting used to him as a personality. 
um, which is that he's um, sharp and acerbic, but um, he in no way um, self-protective. That is to say, he's not... Um, he, he knows how good he is, and he's um, willing to um, be completely um, open about his own powers, um, but he's not interested in being defensive in any way. And he's, he, one of the things that's really nice about him, I think it's true of Swift also, is that there's no self-pity in Pope. Um, and it's, he earns the right to say all the sharp things he does, um, because there's no self-pity there. And I think that's something also that people get used to. Um, the more Pope they read, um, the more they get used to that. He does sometimes make fun of himself, like the end of the um, last reading that we did today, the second um, dialogue in uh, the imitations of satire. This is um, the, ep the epilogue to the satires, where the friend says to him... Um, the, the friend presumably being his lawyer um, to whom he addresses uh, um, the, the um, what does he call it? Well, the, yeah, the first satire at any rate. Um, Fortescue, he, does, he has the friend at the end say, alas, alas, pray end what you began. That is, shut up with these satires now. Pope has just said he's not going to write anymore. The friend agrees, alas, alas, pray end what you began. And write next winter more essays on man. Um, and the joke there, of course, is that uh, the friend is saying, you know, that's completely um, boring and um, uh, unexciting and won't get you in, into any trouble because you're not saying anything that could actually raise any hackles. Um, and part of what he's saying is, well, what's the point of it then? A whole lot of these dialogues are about the point of satire. One of the issues, it's, this isn't actually what I want to talk about today, but just one of the issues that we've been talking about is um, this question of satire's relation to recognition within satire, that Swiftian line that satire is a glass where anyone may recognize the reflection of everyone but himself. Everyone will see um, other reflections but their own. Um, and Pope is, doesn't quite have the same theory of satire. Um, what he thinks is that if satire stings, it should. Uh, that is that um, the specificity of satire can only be, um, can only work if someone thinks that they're the one um, being satirized. And that's why you have to be specific. And if someone doesn't feel wounded by the satire, that means that that person is probably not the person Pope is talking about. And um, if they do feel wounded, it's because what's being satirized is true. Um, otherwise, they wouldn't feel wounded. Um, and so Pope's, um, Pope does have a different view there from Swift. In some ways, they're the same, because in some ways, they're about um, being able to um, say what's wrong with people without naming them explicitly and being able in some, in some sense to get people into trouble while, um, because of the wrong that they've done but while um, never naming them. Pope does a lot of naming though or close to naming and um, that's another way 
that um, he's actually pretty courageous. Um, his satires, though, much more than Swift, they're not about correcting um, the society that he li- that he lives in, which in a way Swift's are. Swift is um, describing um, how terrible things are in the world. That's his savage indignation. Um, but also the idea of indignation is it could be different. Um, there's no need to live for, for the world to be structured this way. The fact that it is is something blameworthy in people. Pope's satires, in a way, are more private, which is to say he's very angry at wrongdoers, especially at cheats, um, people who cheat others and who live by cheating others. Um, and there are many, many ways to be a cheat, but that would be the essential thing that makes Pope angry. Um, but he's also making another claim, which is that there is a way to live a good life. And the way to live a good life is not to um, imagine that the things that people go around um, cheating others in order to get, not to imagine that those things are worth the getting. Um, not to imagine that um, if only there were an honest way to get preferment at court, then you could be happy at court. Um, his whole point is that all these people are cheating in order to do well in a life um, and in a context where everyone else is cheating, um, and in order to be thought well of by other cheaters who won't actually think well of them but will try to take their place and cheat them as well. So that for Pope, there's um, a, a distinction um, and a, be, between cheaters and non-cheaters, not only in their behavior, but in what they want. And it's not that cheaters and non-cheaters want the same thing. It's that there's no reason to want what the cheaters want, because ultimately what the cheaters want is to um, have high position in the ranks of cheaters. And for Pope, that's, um, it may look like you'll get something that'll make you happy, but it won't. That's the, let's, let's, um, I want to get back to the um, memory of an unfortunate lady, but let's go to, um, as an example of that, uh, if you have the um, Twickenham edition, um, it's, uh, what page is it? On page 630. Um, so just to remind you that Har- that we've looked at translations of Horace before, in particular Dryden's translations of Horace, um, what Pope is doing is really imitations rather than translations, more the way Swift does, um, the way Swift imitated Ovid. He's updating and applying um, Horace to 18th century England, 18th century London. Um, and the imitation is, if you've read a lot of Horace, this is what Horace would have sounded like to his Roman contemporaries. Um, if Horace were in England now, this is the sort of thing that he would write. Um, and so just to, just to see some of the um, Pope's own um, pleasure in his writing, um, look at the very beginning of uh, the sixth epistle of the first book of Horace, imitated, um, and it begins with a quotation. Not to admire is all the art I know to make men happy and to keep them so. Um, how would you paraphrase that? Someone? Anyone? Yeah. Um, the only way to keep men happy is to 
have them live a life in which they can be without envy? Yes, exactly. So what... Buddhist. Sorry? Or, yeah, Buddhist or Stoic. Um, the, there's a Stoic virtue called ataraxia, which is to be without desire. Um, here, yeah, admire would mean um, both to... Um, it's, it's a really interesting word, the way Pope is using it. Um, and it's a word that he actually uses a lot because it rhymes well. Um, it's what the Baron does. He um, sees the lock and and to the and and um, and admired. The Baron saw the lock, and I, I think it's all at once admired. Um, and then he to the prize aspired. Um, it's um, a word which gets you a whole lot of moral psychology um, packed into that single word. The moral psychology is something like if someone else has it, you envy it. Um, if you and admiration is um, is a word that sounds like um, one of um, respect for the person or the thing that you admire. That is, when you admire something, you're saying, wow, that's so great that you have that and um, or that you're like that or that you look that way um, and respect because I feel that way, because, because you're, you, you have that wonderful thing. But it's, it's false respect because it's really envy. Um, that is to say, when you admire what someone has, um, you're paying lip service to the idea that it's respect, that they're really neat and interesting and successful in a good way for having it. But what it really means is you want it. Um, and in wanting it, part of what you want is respect from others because now you would have it. And part of what you also want is a kind of gloating over the fact that others envy you for having it. So do, is this something that do you think, I mean, forgetting how Pope uses the word, is this something that you can kind of get on board with as implicit in our use of the word um, in general? Um, I mean, we sometimes use the word admire in a completely good sense, like I really admire um, the courage that you showed under pressure. Um, but generally, admiration, um, you know, for celebrities, let's say, this seems to be a class where we talk about celebrities a lot. Admiration for celebrities um, is a kind of envy which um, manifests itself as respect. And what the envy is for is to be in a situation where others will admire you in just the same way that you're admiring them, which is say the situation which others will envy you. Um, does that make sense to people? Um, Pope is certainly using it that way, and it, and it is used that way in this couplet. Not to admire is all the art I know to make men happy and to keep them so, to make them happy, um, because then you won't be envious of what other, others have, and you won't feel that you're missing something that it would be good to have. Um, to keep them so because you won't fall into a kind of um, admiration of yourself that you want other people to share if you succeed in getting those things. So being, so being um, Buddhist about it, being um, unconcerned with either with what you don't have or with what you do have, um, that's how to achieve happiness. So what the footnote will tell you, I mean, so Pope finishes the, the opening stanza, 
plain truth, dear Murray, um, Murray is a friend of his who would later become Chief Justice. Um, plain truth, dear Murray, needs no flowers of speech, so take it in the very words of Creech. So what he's saying is if you tell the, if you tell the plain truth, you don't have to ornament it. That is, you don't have to put it in an admirable way. So I'm just going to give it to you um, the way Creech put it. But then look at the footnote, and what you'll find is that's not how Creech quite translated Horace. Um, Horace, the, Horace, in Horace, it's a famous um, tag, a tag known as Neil Admirari. Um, but that's not quite how, how Creech translates Horace. Creech does it um, as a triplet. Not to admire, as most or won't to do, is the only method, it is the only method that I know to make men happy and to keep them so. Um, so what's Pope done to Creech? I think this is an easy question. Condensed him. Yeah, condensed this triplet into a couplet um, and gave it a lot more power and point. Um, by doing so, you can see it's it's partly just really interesting to see Pope revising someone else's um, okay poetry in order to make it sound more like Pope. And then without, he doesn't expect you to look at this footnote. Um, what all he says, Pope's footnote to this is, um, from whose translation of Horace the two first lines are taken. And he doesn't say, actually, I've improved those two first lines. He lets Creech get all the credit, um, but he has improved it. And one of the neat things then is you can see um, Pope as a poet, the kind of ways that he will, um, uh, the talent that he has for making things better, um, for, um, for writing better than the people that he's quoting. Um, and you can see um, that he's not boasting about that. He's not saying, well, you know, Creech put this in a kind of more slovenly way, um, so I'm basing my couplet on Creech. He's giving Creech the credit for what he himself is doing. Um, so that's a nice little moment um, that you're getting here. It's also worth looking at the end of that poem um, because there he does a really interesting thing to our friend Rochester. Um, this is on page 634. If, after all, we must with Wilmot own, the cordial drop of life is love alone. Um, actually, I didn't write down what Rochester said, but I, I, so I can't quote it exactly. But um, Wilmot there is John Wilmot, Earl of Rochester. So um, he's, he's alluding to a poem of Rochester's here. Um, it's, the poem is... Um, from, I think it's from Dorinda in town to Chloris in the country. It's an epistle. Um, do you have an edition with notes? Um, so what, um, what Rochester says is that love is the sweetener um, that makes the horror of life, um, make, that distracts us from how horrible life is. Um, it's, the word is, oh, is it in here? Oh, it is. Yes, I was looking at the bottom of the page like a fool. Um, that cordial drop, heaven, yeah, okay, letter from Artemisia in the town to Chloe in the country. That cor so, now you, so now you can just tell how accurate I am when I try quoting from memory. You, get a, you have a good um, control here. Um, 
Love that cordial drop heaven in our cup has thrown to make the nauseous draft of life go down. So nauseous there means nauseating. Um, it's always misused in modern American um, to mean nauseated, but nauseous actually means it causes nausea. Um, so love is a sweetener. Um, it's like milk or um, lemon or sugar in very strong tea. Um, a cordial drop, it's actually like, like a little brandy, very strong tea. A cordial drop thrown in our cup by heaven to make the, the nauseating drink of life go down. Um, so that's not at all what Pope is saying, but he was arrested by the idea that love is the cordial drop of life, that love is what makes life worth it. So for him, you get a much um, uh, less grim um, wrap-up and conclusion to this poem. If, after all, we must with Wilmot own the cordial drop of life is love alone, and swift cry, and if, after all, swift cry wisely, vive la bagatelle, the man, who's taking French? What's a bagatelle? Well, it's a dance, but it's a particular kind of dance that is um, a trifle. Uh, yeah. Yeah, bagatelles are pieces of music or dances that are just sort of fun in a page or so long in music. Um, they're, not, they're, not, um, they're not like sonatas or symphonies. They're just, oh, a mere bagatelle. Um, I think that's actually a line from Wilde, a mere bagatelle. Maybe it's Dickens. At any rate, um, so Swift, in a letter, um, actually, to Dr. Arbuthnot, um, said that that was his view of life, vive la bagatelle. There isn't a note on that, is there? No, okay. So now you can count on it. Um, uh, and, Swift, and if Swift cry wisely, vive la bagatelle, the man that loves and laughs, laughs must sure do well. So that's what you should do with your life, love and laugh. Adieu, if this advice appear the worst, mean take the counsel which I gave you first, or better precepts, if you can impart, why do? I'll follow them with all my heart. So just don't be admiring. Um, love and laugh, that's what you should be doing in life. Um, so that's Pope's version of um, Rochester, and it's a nicer version of Rochester than Rochester. Since we're looking at the satires, and since we already did talk about the epistles of Dr. Arbuthnot, which Pope um, printed as the sort of um, opening poem in the series of satires. Uh, let's look at, to the epilogue of, to the satires. This is page 694. Um, again, partly because it's so brilliant. I was also thinking um, today that I should have flagged, and we didn't really have time, but um, flagged one more famous line in um, of many in The Rape of the Lock, which is... Um, the description of, of um, when it's time for, what time of day it is. Um, and the great line there is, and wretches hang, do you, people remember this? And wretches hang, the jurymen may dine. Um, that's, uh, well, let me find it for you. Um, it is, page 227. 
This is where Anna sometimes consultates and sometimes tea. Um, it's the afternoon at line 19 of Canto 3 of the Rape of the Lock. Meanwhile, declining from the noon of day, the sun obliquely shoots his burning ray. The hungry judges soon the sentence sign, and wretches hang, the jurymen may die. So it's getting late in the afternoon, the judges are hungry, and so what happens? Just paraphrase. Yeah, exactly. Um, actually, dine probably here means dine out. But yeah, they got, they got parties to go to. Anyone ever see the movie Twelve Angry Men? Um, it's a really it, it's a really good movie about a jury deliberating on um, the fate of a person accused of murder. Um, and it begins, George C. Scott is actually kind of the villain of the piece. Um, and he's complaining that he has tickets for the ball game that night and they got to quickly find this guy guilty. Um, and 10 of the other, of the other 11 jurors agree with him. Um, so that's, uh, 12 Angry Men is, Pope puts that into a single line. What's the other line, by the way, that Pope gives a title to a movie for? Did you notice? Yeah. Say that again? Yeah. Yeah, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Um, where? Do you remember? No, I, I remember reading that and thinking, I don't really understand the context of that, but then I remember the big Right. <laughs> it's actually a very good summary of the Jim Carrey movie. Um, it's always at Abelard. Um, those who are not... Um, in some way um, tainted by what real life is like, um, but who can give all their attention to God. They experience the eternal sunshine and the spotless mind. Whereas we, Jim Carrey and other real human beings, um, even if we're offered the drugs which are supposed to clean our minds out like that, something still um, makes us love other people. Okay, um, have you guys seen the movie? Yeah, it's great. Not your typical Jim Carrey movie, but it's, but, but nothing is. But it's really great. Um, okay, so uh, yeah, the judges soon the sentence sign and wretches hang, the jurymen may dine. Um, the reason I wanted to flag that line is because again, it's just typical of Pope's technique, which is that um, even in a single line, and wretches hang, the the jurymen may dine. You can feel how the um, description, the moral description of, of um, the passage of time that the line is lamenting. That is, people are quickly shoved into their grave so that the, so that the people who are sitting in judgment on them can have a pleasant evening, um, pleasant afternoon and evening. Um, the line itself mimics that. Wretches hang. It's three syllables. That's all. Their entire life comes to an end in three syllables and in the plural. Wretches hang. And then you get the much more leisurely that jurymen may dine. Um, so that's a really typical line, typical in its greatness, line of Pope's. Um, typical in the way, um, like all lines in iambic pentameter, 
it has a shorter and a longer part to it. Four syllables and wretches hang, and then six syllables the jurymen may dine. And that the shorter, punchier, quicker, compressed four syllables describe the end of people's lives. And the longer, more leisurely, easier six-syllable part of the line just describes what the evening is going to be like for the jurymen who convict them. Um, so that's a typical Popian line. Partly I wanted to draw your attention to it here because he does some really neat things in the dialogue, in the epilogue to the satires. In all the dialogue, um, for sure, but in this one especially. Because here the poet and the friend, um, the same friend as before, here the poet and friend share a lot of lines. Um, and they can say a lot to each other in ten syllables. So let's just look at... Um, the beginning. So the friend says, "'Tis all a libel, Paxton, sir, will say." Um, so who's Paxton? The note I noticed tells you. Do you remember? Paxton is essentially um, the, the, the um, kingdom's censor. Um, he decides whether something is true or not, and you're in trouble if he thinks it's not true. So watch out for what Paxton will do. Tis all a libel, Paxton, sir, will say. The lawyer, Pope's lawyer, tells him. Not yet, my friend, says Pope. Tomorrow, faith, it may. Um, tomorrow, perhaps it will turn out to um, be, he may tomorrow say that this is a libel and I may be in trouble. And for that very cause, I print today. Um, so I'm getting this out as fast as possible. How should I fret? to mangle every line. That is, how much I would fret and how my fretting would mangle every line. How should I fret with the result of mangling every, every line? How should I fret to mangle every line in reverence to the sins of 39? Um, what's 39 mean there? Look at the right over where it says dialogue 2. Look at the date of the poem. So he's basically saying, if I'm worried about what's going to turn out to be true in this poem, when I attack the venality and greed of certain people, whom I'm sure next year will do these bad things, um, then I'll be in trouble. But I'm publishing this in 38, and I can't start fretting about how much of my prophecy about how these people behave um, is going to turn out to be true next year. Um, you know, if you publish something about... Did you guys actually see that uh, that attack on Google News yesterday? Um, it was actually pretty funny. So, uh, you know the way you get uh, to the top of Google News? Well, you probably don't know this, but um, is if you have a lot of keywords that people are searching for, that'll be... Those are the, those are the news articles that Google um, 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 consolidates first. And so someone um, published a parody article in a parody newspaper, which was that um, the new Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and the new House uh, Majority Speaker of the House John Boehner, um, along with the whole Tea Party, which had captured all of the government through the, through the Koch brothers, um, were impeaching President Obama because he was a socialist and a Muslim. So basically they used um, all the key words that people who spend all their time looking for news to outrage them on the internet search for when they search the news engines. 
um, and um, and they published an article which was which was actually dated 2011 about the impeachment of Barack Hussein Obama, um, and that was the lead item item on Google News until someone noticed it, which took about 30 seconds, and then um, Google had to intervene manual um, <laughs> to make sure that it wouldn't be. Sorry. I said God forbid. God forbid. I know it's just it's just not right. Um, so essentially, that's what um, Pope is saying. Also, that if I have to start worrying about um, about my predictions of the future, if I were to if if I were going to be punished now for stuff that people aren't even going to do till next year, um, I couldn't write at all. Um, and he says, and for that very cause, I print today. How should I fret to mangle it? today in 1738? How should I fret to mangle every line in reverence to the sins of 39? Vice with such giant strides comes on a main invention strives to be before in vain. So this is the internet meme known as life imitates the onion. Um, that is whatever um, completely ridiculous onion story gets published one year. The next year, it's actually a straight news story. Um, that's what Pope is also complaining about. Vice with such dry, giant strides comes on a main. Invention strives to be before in vain. Um, you try to invent stuff that could never happen in order to exaggerate um, and bring out what's terrible about what is happening. But this exaggerated invention um, gets caught up with by reality. Feign what I will, that is, um, produce whatever fiction I will. Feign here means simply to write fiction. Um, feign what I will and paint it air so strong, some rising genius sins up to my song. That is, there's some genius who, who's just as bad as the exaggerated caricature that I tried to invent. Life keeps catching up with art. And so the friend now says, that may be so, but you're still going to get into trouble because you named them by name. Yet none, there is no rising genius of this sort, no um, uh, Sharon Angle, no um, Chris O'Donnell, yet none but you by name the guilty lash. So you're always naming them straight out, unlike Guthrie. Who is whom, footnote readers? Well, you've got to read the notes. I will read to you. What is an ordinary, though? Um, the person who is responsible for um, uh, the um, feeding and shelter of the people there. So basically the, I guess you might now say major domo. No, you wouldn't now say major domo. What would you say? Um, ordinary essentially means food and the ordinary is the person who, who just makes sure um, uh, that, that uh, the bureaucrat responsible for the distribution of those things. So the ordinary of Newgate who publishes the memoirs of the malefactors and is often prevailed upon to be so tender of their reputation as to set down no more than the initials of their name. So he publishes um, the story of the people who were in Newgate Prison. Everyone knows that Newgate is a prison. Okay, so he publishes the story of the people who were in Newgate Prison and those people there will sometimes bribe him not to um, say, not to name them by their full name. 
Um, so it's a good living for him. Um, so, yet none but you, by name the guilty lash, in Guthrie saves half Newgate by a dash. What does the dash mean there? Right, and loads of S-H dash almost choke the way. Um, S-H, they're standing for Shadwell, of course. Uh, sorry? No, it's, it, some additions will fill it in, which they shouldn't. Um, but some additions assume, okay, yeah, 21st century readers, they just want to know who this is. They don't want to um, have to guess, so we'll just say Shadwell. Um, but no, part of the joke is the dashes are there. Um, there's another version of that joke. It's actually a version that I'm particularly interested in at the end of this, if you go to page 702. Um, so here again, he's talking about um, how much better it is to live um, as a private person at peace and at home. Um, and... Uh, Started line 228, when black ambition stains a public cause, a monarch's sword, when mad vainglory draws, not Waller's wreath can hide the nation's scar, nor wallow turn the feather to a star. So um, when these things happen, when a public cause is stained by black ambition, when um, a king becomes mad and vainglorious and decides um, simply because his father failed to do it to invade Iraq. No, sorry, that's a slip of the tongue. Um, but when mad vainglory draws a monarch's sword, um, then even Waller's poetry, um, and remember how much he likes Waller, um, not, not even Waller's wreath can hide the nation's scar. Um, so he may cover it with a wreath, but it's still a scar um, to the nation that such behavior occurs. Not Waller's wreath can hide the nation's scar, nor wallow turn the feather to a star. Um, so even wallow can't um, make what's, um, uh, what's the feather showing um, royal rank um, into a star which would show that, that God was on the side of the king. Um, so, um, not so when diademed with rays divine, touched with the flame that breaks from virtue's shrine, her priestess muse forbids the good to die and opes the temple of eternity. So good poetry is poetry that praises those who are genuinely good. So um, when the priestess of virtue um, praises and immortalizes the good, um, then you can actually get great poetry rather than flattering poetry which disguises the evil things done by the person's flatter. Um, there, other trophies deck the truly brave than such as Antis casts into the grave. Um, so Antis is, um, the, um, is a, was a real person, a, function, a functionary. Uh, they call him the chief herald at arms. That Pope calls him the chief herald at arms. Um, it is the custom, at the, and explains, it is the custom at the funeral of great peers 
to cast into the grave the broken staves and ensigns of honor. And he's saying that's all false honor. So that when a great lord dies, Antis comes to the funeral and he throws in some symbols of the, of the importance of this person. But Pope says those, aren't, those trophies aren't real. Other trophies deck the truly brave than such as Anstis casts into the grave. Far other stars than blank and blank blank wear and may descend to Mortington from Stair. Um, so far other stars than the footnote suggests, George and Frederick, one and two syllables. Um, not dashes and not G dash and F dash K, but far other stars than blank and blank blank wear. Um, or we could say it far other stars than star and star star wear. That is to say, the joke here is a joke about typography. Um, the joke here is a joke about the fact that he is putting in those stars because they are so, because um, what they've done is so bad that it would really besmirch their reputations to name them. So what he has to do instead is put in a star, an asterisk, um, in order not to name them, but the asterisk itself is a badge of dishonor. And he does this in a context where he says reeds and feathers can't cover over dishonor. Um, Lalo can't turn the feather to a star, to a real star, but this kind of star is a badge of dishonor. So the very thing, the very place where he's not naming George and Frederick, um, the asterisks which he substitutes for their names um, are themselves, in a very obvious way, badges of dishonor, um, and the line is describing the very thing that it's also telling us about. Um, in the 19th century, uh, the great comic poet um, William um, Mackworth um, prayed um, has a poem, it's a poem called New Year's Eve, where he says, uh, and now I welcome rank on rank the Earl of Asterisk and Mr. Blank. And of course, it's the Earl of Asterisk um, and Mr. And there's a blank. And so the typography is rhyming with the lines in which it appears. Um, uh, Byron also at one point talks about um, Lady Asterisk's unwritten novel. Um, the reason, it's, it's not done much anymore, but you can see it, the Norton Anthology does it. The reason asterisks are used, we now use ellipses points usually, where in the 18th century um, people tended to use asterisks. Asterisks actually go back to the 4th century as um, indicating um, stuff that's left out. And um, the reason they do is the idea is there was something that used to um, shine there. There was something meaningful there that could have shone out at you, and all that's left is the shining. Um, so the stars are still shining at you, even though what was um, what they stand for is gone. Um, so, so our ellipses points are actually they derive from asterisks as a way of indicating missing material, left out material, elision in a text. Um, so that's what Pope is doing here in a really brilliant way. For other stars than star and star star, where? Um, does your version have stars there? Yeah, okay, good. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, I think that it would be, it was probably the same typography as asterisks, but what these guys have to do is make sure you don't think they're leaving anything out. So um, that's also why they use the greater than and less than signs um, in the footnotes, because that wasn't typographically available in the 18th century. And so you know that, um, and you won't think that that was in the original. Um, editing is a tricky business. That's why Tybalt was so good at it, and Pope said that. Um, so back to then the beginning. Um, yet none but you, the friend says again at line 10, yet none but you by name the guilty lash. In Guthrie saves half Newgate by a dash. Spare then the person and expose the vice. So that's the Swiftian idea. Um, it's something that Pope has also said at the beginning of the epistle to Dr. Arvithnot. He said, well, I'm going to attack a lot of people, but um, you'll only complain if you think that I'm attacking you, and you'll only think that I'm attacking you if you're guilty. Um, but now he's not saying that anymore. Um, the friend is saying, why are you naming people? Spare them the person and expose the vice. Just talk about why it's a bad um, vice, but don't go after particular people. And Pope disagrees. How, sir? Not damn the sharper, but the dice? That is, so if someone is cheating at dice, is using loaded dice, so what you're basically saying is um, expose the dice but let the, let the cheater go. Come on then, satire. General, unconfined, spread thy broad wing and souse on all the kind. That is, okay, satire, just say that you think that greed is bad. Go ahead and do it. That's great. Satire is really effective. Greed is, well... It might actually, a lot of people don't agree with that. Um, Wall Street 2 just came out. So you say, you say selfish murder is bad. Okay, that's great. That's very effective. Um, ye statesmen, priests of one religion all, ye tradesmen, vile in army, court, or hall. So he's just um, naming all the things that we're against. Um, Ye statesmen, priests of one religion, all. Ye tradesmen, vile, in army, court, or hall. Ye reverend atheists. Scandal, says the friend. Reverend atheists? What do you mean? Scandal, name them. Who? And Post response is, that's the thing you bid me not to do. So as soon as he starts talking about people who are doing terribly sinful things, the friend says, who are they? After he's just said, you shouldn't be naming people. Yeah, but you can tell me. Scandal, name them. Who? And Pope says, nope, well, that's the thing you bid me not to do. Who starved a sister? Who forswore a debt? I never named. The town's inquiring yet. The poisoning dame. You mean? I don't. You do. So notice the dialogue that he gets into a single line there. The poisoning dame. You mean? The friend is guessing who it is. Pope guesses who the friend is going to guess. I don't. The friend guesses that Pope has guessed whom the friend is going to guess and is denying it precisely because he knows that the friend is about to guess right and is very pleased with himself. You do. Um, so, yeah, cute. Is that what you said? Yeah, it is cute. Cute in the best possible way. Um... This is like, it's amazing how much dialogue is right there. And then Pope replies, see, now I keep the secret and not you. 
You think you know who it is, and I'm keeping the secret. See, now I keep the secret and not you. The bribing statesman. Friend. Hold, too high you go. The bribed elector. There you stoop to low. I fain would please you if I knew with what. Tell me, which name is lawful game? Which knave is lawful game? Which not? Must great offenders once escape the crown like royal hearts be nevermore run down? So who, can, who is okay for satire to go against? Um, if people are found innocent, does that mean they can't, nothing, no one can say anything about them again? You can't, if you're Jon Stewart, you can't say anything about O.J. Simpson? Um, admit your law to spare, let's admit, let's say your law to spare the knight requires, as beasts of nature may we hunt the squires? So if we, if we can't go after um, the aristocracy, um, can we, as beasts who are being hunted by knights with their squires, can we at least go after the squires who are hunting on foot while the knights are hunting on horseback? Suppose I censure, you know what I mean, to save a bishop, may I name a dean? Um, so if I'm not going to go after a bishop, can I at least go after a dean, to, after a lesser clerical order? A dean, sir, no! His fortune is not made. You heard a man that's rising in the trade. So if you go after a dean, you're going after someone who doesn't have tenure yet. Well, here he does. But, um, if not the tradesman who set up today, much less the apprentice who tomorrow may. So if I can't go after the person who's set up today, I can't even go after the apprentice either. Down, down, proud satire, though a realm be spoiled, a reign no mightier thief than wretched Wilde. And the footnote tells you who Jonathan Wilde was. Um, Fielding wrote a book about him too. Or if a country, if a court or country's made a job that is turned into something to um, loot, go drench a pickpocket and join the mob. Go after um, the illegal immigrants and not the way um, the, whole, the whole country's going down the drain. Um, and the friend finally, and he goes on, but sir, I beg you for the love of vice, the matter's weighty, pray consider twice. Have you less pity for the needy cheat, the poor and friendless villain than the great? If you really want me to go after the little criminals, are you less, do you have less pity for those who commit crimes because they're poor than for those who commit crimes and aren't poor? Alas, the small discredit of a bribe scarce hurts the lawyer, but undoes the scribe. Um, the scribe there would be the legal secretary. So a bribe, you bribe a lawyer and, and that gets found out, eh, all right, no big deal. The lawyer isn't going to worry too much about it. Um, but the secretary, if, if he takes a bribe, um, he's going to be fired. Then better sure if charity becomes to, to tax directors who, thank God, have plumps. Then better sure it charity becomes the tax directors who, thank God, have plumps. Better to go after boards of directors who have um, plums, which is to say who are getting paid a lot of money for doing nothing. It's a, plum is a nonce word. Um, we still use it, but not quite the same way. Um, that's a real plum. Um, but what it means is you're getting a lot for almost nothing. It's a stroke of good fortune is how we use it now. It was a stroke of corruption that looked like good fortune to those who got it then. Would you agree with that? Is that a good gloss on plums? Um, 
still better ministers, better to go after ministers than directors, or if the thing may pinch in there, why lay it on a king? Stop, stop, says the friend. Don't you dare go after the king. You'll be thrown into prison. So Pope then asked, must satire then not rise nor fall? Speak out and bid me blame no rogues at all. So if I can't do anything, um, I should just stop writing satire. It's not, you keep saying I, I can't satirize whoever I want to satirize. So the friend says, no, no, I have an idea. Um, yes, strike that wild. I'll justify the blow. So you can go after Jonathan Wild. Um, strike that wild. Um, I'll justify the blow as your lawyer. I'll, I'll see to it that you're not convicted for going after Jonathan Wilde. And then Pope just points out, strike why the man was hanged 10 years ago. Um, so you're saying that satire is fine as long as it's, it's against people um, who are long dead and who have been publicly punished for their crimes. Um, so anyhow, this is, um, this is a satire about satires and about what um, what satire aims at and um, is about and about why anyone would write satire. And Pope is saying that, um, yeah, he's a writer. Yeah, he likes writing. Um, writing for him is the opposite of admiration um, because writing is a kind of truth-telling and it's a kind of truth-telling that um, is its own reward because it's, it's, because it's its own vocation. Um, one of the things that is too little um, credited to um, restoration in 18th century poets is a sense of writing as a vocation. And it's actually pretty striking um, to see how often Pope describes writing as his vocation, from I lisped in numbers for the numbers came in the epistle to Dr. Arbuthnot to um, other stuff in the satires and elsewhere where he um, basically says the one thing that gives him any happiness at all in life is to write. Um, it, that tends to be thought of as a romantic or post-romantic idea. Um, that is, Dr. Johnson very famously said, um, and I know you're reading him, believe me, uh, right? Dr. Johnson famously said, um, no man but a blockhead ever wrote except for money. Um, that it would be that writing is a really hard thing to do, and anyone who romanticized writing, um, this is in a pre-romantic era, but anyone who romanticized writing was a blockhead. What writing was was instrumental, and, and it was a job, and you should do it for money. Um, but no one, Johnson included, um, who was a really great writer in the 18th century, actually felt that way, even if they said that they felt that way. Um, and it's true that Pope and Dryden did write for money and did make a living as writers, but it's also true that that's the living they wanted to make, um, that writing for them was a really um, deep and central experience of thinking about truth and thinking about the analogy between truth and language, um, thinking about um, the ways that language could be compressed and sharpened and made um, into an instrument for weighing and balancing um, the world, um, as though the heroic couplet is the balance of the world itself. And um, it really is worth noticing and, and worth um, admiring um, 
the commitment that Pope has to writing itself um, and um, uh, to, to the very idea of writing. Um, let's go to um, this. Yep, let's go. Let's go back to the um, unfortunate lady. Um, there's a, there was another line I wanted to look at, but um, I won't find it now. So this is page two sixty two. And this comes right after Eloisa to Abelard, um, written the next year. Um, and this is basically all made up, at least um, whoever she is, no one knows, and whether she's anyone real or not, um, no one knows. But it's um, like with Eloisa to Abelard, the idea of... Um, a woman's suicide is something that um, grasps his imagination. So this, like Eloise Abelard, is one of his strikingly moving and sad poems. Um, and it also has some of his great lines. So I guess we probably have time to go through it. Um, so it begins, it plunges in medias race. What beckoning ghost along the moonlight shade invites my step and points to yonder glade. Um, so there's a ghost beckoning to him. Um, he doesn't know who it is. Um, and then recognizes her. She points to a glade and says, come with me. And then he recognizes her. Tis she. And then the question is, well, who? Um, Tis she. But why that bleeding bosom gourd? Why dimly gleams the visionary sword? So he sees her and he sees what about her? Yeah, yeah, that she's holding the sword with which she stabbed herself. So um, just th that's the important thing to understand by those lines. That is, there she is. But why that, why that bleeding bosom gourd? Why dimly gleams the visionary sword? Um, why does he see those two things? Yeah. Oh, I was wondering how you could tell that she's holding Well, it's, no, the bosom is gourd, but it doesn't mean that it's inside her. Um, the fact that, the, that it gleams means, I mean, it, it, I'm glad you asked that question because it's, it's really interesting, again, to see how amazingly quickly Pope can depict a scene, if you read carefully. So the fact that the sword gleams means you can see the blade, which means that she's holding it out. Um, it's no longer within her. Um, it gleams dimly, and the question why that bosom gourd, um, why, excuse me, but why that bleeding bosom gourd, why dimly gleams the visionary sword? Notice that those are, this, this is, Pope is a person to learn technique from and to have technique pointed out in. Um, notice that those two whys are slightly different in meaning. One why the answer would be to why that bleeding bosom gourd would be because she stabbed herself and she's dead. Um, the other why, why dimly gleams the visionary sword, would be more why am I having this vision? 
Now, it's not quite that those two Ys don't correspond. I mean, they correspond a lot, um, depending on how much pressure you put on the word dimly. That is, if you ask, why does it gleam dimly, what's the answer? Yeah, because it's covered with blood. Um, but the meter actually puts pressure on the word gleams. Why dimly gleams the visionary sword? Um, again, you can feel that. Do you, do you hear that if you just think of this line metrically? Um, just say it out loud on three and exaggerate the stresses that are natural to you. That is, um, say it the way you would say it, but in order to really communicate where you think the stresses are. So on three, we'll do the line. One, two, three, Y. So it sounds like you guys actually weren't exaggerating, but you were still putting the stress on gleams, which is natural. Um, that is that Pope knows and writes and expects lines to, to break into units of four and six, um, and he expects a longer word like gleam or a longer syllable like gleam to be more stressed in the reader's mind than a shorter syllable like dim. So notice that iambically, they're both stressed. It's why dim, we gleams, the vis on air, the sword. That's if you do jog trot iambic pentameter, if you judge a poet's song by numbers. Um, but any decent poet um, will actually do iambic pentameter as a graded series of stresses. Um, and in fact, usually in an iambic line, there are only four stresses that really matter and a fifth stress that is more um, filling out the line. Um, if you really get into prosody and scansion, which you should, it's, it's a pastime for a lifetime. Um, one thing that, that you should practice is figuring out what the most stressed syllable in a line is, and then the second most stressed, and then third most stressed, and then the fourth and the fifth. And here, what you can feel, what would you say the two most stressed syllables in that line are? Gleams, obviously, is one of them. And sword, yeah. Um, it's not vis, it's not why dimly gleams the visionary sword. It's why dimly gleams the visionary sword. Um, but there, what you can see Pope doing is he's letting why, the second why, the why in that line, um, slide a little bit from the question, why is this happening, to why am I seeing you? And um, the way you can feel that is the gleaming is for him, whereas the dimly is because of the blood. But he's not saying, why gleams so dimly? Um, yeah, it could. Why gleams so dimly swords that once were bright? Then um, you could see that that um, dimly was that, that the, the dimness of the gleam was what's important. Here it is grammatically important that it gleams dimly, but metrically less important than that it gleams. So why dimly gleams the visionary sword? basically means, why am I having this vision? So the first why is, why did you kill yourself? And the second why is, why am I having this vision? Do you see the difference in, in those whys? 
This may seem completely picky, but it's this is how Pope works. This is the nuts and bolts of what he's able to do. So, um, and then that tells you in four lines that this is a vision or a dream of some kind. That is, Tishi means um, that it's someone he recognizes and recognizes um, with surprise. And um, the surprise has to be because she, he already knows she's dead. So somehow what we're getting here is a sense that this is a dream. Um, and in the dream he's asking, why did she kill herself? And why, am I, why is she coming to me now in a vision? None of that is explicit. Um, this could be a wide awake moment and there might be a woman who comes to him and, oh my God, she's dead. Um, Plot-wise, the words are consistent with that reading, but the meter and the description is not. You can get from the meter and the description that this is um, like a dream, and he recognizes her as this woman who has killed herself. Um, and he wants to know what she's doing there. Oh, ever beauteous, ever friendly, tell. Is it in, is it in heaven a crime to love too well? Um, so what would make him ask that rhetorical, or not that rhetorical, that anguished question? What prompts that question in him? <clears throat> the wandering Yeah, yeah. Why are you here and not in heaven? Is it did heaven reject you? Did heaven repulse you because you killed yourself for love? Is that what happened? Is it in heaven a crime to love too well? So that now again, in a single line, we know why she's committed suicide. Because she's loved too well. Is it in heaven a crime to bear too tender or too firm a heart? Too tender so that... What did her tenderheartedness make her do? Kill herself, yeah. She couldn't stand what had happened to her. So why the or too firm? She, yeah, she had the courage to do it. So again, that's a typical Popian balance around the or, and it tells you that she's both. Strong enough to kill herself and tender enough to have reasons to do it. Um, to act a lover's or a Roman's part. Uh, a lover's part, killing yourself for love. What's a Roman's part? Sorry? Committing suicide the way the ancient Romans did, the way Antony um, says that he will do in Antony and Cleopatra. And then that great and famous line, is there no bright reversion in the sky for those who greatly think or bravely die? So is there no bright reversion in the sky? Don't you get um, a, um, a return of what you forfeited in the sky if you are someone who greatly thought and bravely died. Um, great line, bright reversion. And again, typical of Pope, that one syllable adjective and then long noun that it modifies. Is there no bright reversion in the sky for those who greatly think or bravely die? Why bade ye else ye powers? Her soul aspire above the vulgar flight of low desire. So if she's not going to be forgiven in heaven, why did you do this to her? Why bade ye else he powers her? 
that her soul should aspire? Why did you bid her soul to aspire above the vulgar flight of low desire? Ambition first sprung from your ambition first sprung from your blessed abodes, the glorious fault of angels and of gods. So she was ambitious, but so were you. Thence to their images on earth it flows, and in the breasts of kings and heroes glows. Most souls, tis true, but peep out once an age, dull, sullen prisoners in the body's cage. Dim lights of life that burn a length of years, useless, unseen as lamps and sepulchres. Like eastern kings, a lazy state they keep, and close confined to their own palace, sleep. Uh, we saw the, that same image in the epistles to Dr. Arbuthnot, um, potentates and kings who simply stay at home. But he's saying, look, ambition is what Satan had. Ambition is what the gods have. Ambition goes to certain kings. And in most people, it just disappears. And then um, they become completely ordinary, unambitious people, dull, sullen prisoners in the body's cage. Um, but from these, perhaps, your nature bade her die. Fate snatched her early to the pitying sky. So maybe so that she wouldn't turn into someone who had lost all ambition, um, she died because she was fated to die. As into the air, as into air the pure spirits flow and separate from their kindred dregs below, so flew the soul to its congenial place nor left one virtue to redeem her race. So um, she went rushing up to heaven, maybe, um, because she didn't belong on earth, and you should accept her for that reason. But thou, he goes on, false guardian of a charge too good, thou mean deserter of thy brother's blood, see on these ruby lips, the trembling breath, these cheeks now fading at the blast of death. Cold is that breast which warmed the world before, and those love-darting eyes must roll no more. Thus, if eternal justice rules the ball, thus shall your wives and thus your children fall. On all the line a sudden vengeance waits, and frequent hearses shall besiege your gates. So you who were supposed to be taking care of her, either as the person she loved or as, a, or as her guardian, um, you who drove her to this situation, you will be cursed. Frequent hearses is a famous phrase from this. Um, the mystery writer John, I think it was John MacDonald, um, wrote a book called Frequent Hearses based on this. So when you come upon it, you'll know it's from Pope. Um, their passengers shall stand and pointing say <coughs> while the long funerals blacken all the way lo these were they whose souls the fury steeled and cursed with hearts unknowing how to yield thus unlamented passed the proud away the gaze of fools and pageant of a day so perish all whose breasts ne'er learn to glow for others good or melt at others woe so those of you who didn't feel with her and for her um, will be punished for it. What can atone, O ever-injured shade, thy fate unpitied and thy rights on 
paid. Um, so no one. So you committed suicide, and now what we're getting to understand is that people just had contempt for her. Here she died for love and for despair, and the result was universal contempt. And it's Pope who has contempt for the contemptuous. The thing to see is that the attitude here in this sad poem about her um, is the same as the attitude in the satires. It's when people are um, contemptuous of others that Pope becomes contemptuous of them. Um, so now he addresses her again. What can atone, O ever injured shade, thy fate unpitied and thy rights unpaid? No friend's complaint, no kind domestic tear, please thy pale ghost or grace thy mournful fear. No one came to her funeral. By foreign hands thy dying eyes were closed. By foreign hands thy decent limbs composed. By foreign hands thy humble grave adorned. By strangers honored and by strangers mourned. So she died either elsewhere or more likely um, the people who took care of her funeral were, that was their job. It's a little six feet under kind of thing. Um, and no one who cared about her um, cared about her. There was no one to, no one took care when she died. Yeah. Yeah, she's not allowed sacred. She can't be buried in sacred ground. That's about to come up. So yeah, that's right. That that is that because she's a suicide. All the um, priggish people who are who are um, uh, secure in their own virtue are. I mean, he's thinking ultimately of Ophelia here, and of um, the question whether Ophelia will be buried in in hallowed ground or not. Um, but she isn't buried in hallowed ground. Um, her family is shocked and horrified by her, by what she's done, and they want to, they want to have nothing to do with her, and um, and there's uh, they don't pity her, and there are no funeral rites for her. Um, what though no friends in sable weeds appear, so no one appears in mourning, um, even though no friends do what everyone else gets, which is an hour's worth of grief, and then a year dressed in mourning, which is. Um, Pope making fun of them. What though no friends grieve for an hour, perhaps, then mourn a year and bear about the mockery of woe to midnight dances in the public show. So what, he says, if that happens? You could have, now notice there's a turn in the poem. Yeah, you could have had a good funeral. You should have. They should have come. But it doesn't matter because even when people actually go to funerals, they grieve for only an hour and then they think they'll look good wearing black for the next year. Um, that's the mockery of woe, which they bring to midnight dances in the public show. Look at me, I'm all in black. Again, he's thinking of Hamlet with his knighted color, as he puts it. What though no weeping loves thy ashes grace, nor polished marble emulate thy face, so you don't get um, beautiful funerary um, statuary. What, and this is um, Tina, the place where we find out that, uh, we're, that she's not buried in sacred ground. What though no sacred earth allow thee room nor hallowed dirge be muttered o'er thy tomb. So what? And then we get this really beautiful part. Yet shall thy grave with rising flowers be dressed, and the green turf lie lightly on thy breast. 
There shall the morn her earliest tears bestow. There the first roses of the year shall blow. While angels with, with their silver wings o'ershade the ground. Now sacred by thy relics made. So even though you don't get any fake human mourning the way most of us do, you get this beautiful blessing on Pope's part. Um, a blessing in the form of a prediction. Um, and a prediction in the form of um, a, um, a perspective on nature. So what if humans don't care? Um, your grave will be not with statuary, but with flowers it'll be dressed. Um, the green turf will, unlike, sta unlike stone, will lie lightly on your breast. And the dew will weep for you even if people don't. And the roses will come for you. So... Peaceful rests without a stone, a name, what once had beauty, titles, wealth, and fame. So even the rich don't get more than you do. How, and this is the other most, the other very famous line in this poem. How loved, how honored once avails thee not. So once you're dead, it doesn't matter if you were loved or honored anyone. How loved, how honored once avails thee not, to whom related, or by whom begot. A heap of dust alone remains of thee, tis all thou art, and all the proud must be. So here he's moralizing again. Again, I just want to stress the consistency with what we're looking at in the satires. Why not to admire is the way to be happy. And even poets die. This should be connected to the death of Dr. Arthmont. Poets themselves must fall like those they sung, deaf the praised ear and mute the tuneful tongue. So the, the person the poem is written to is deaf, the tongue that spoke the poem, the poet's tongue is mute. Even he, that is me, whose soul now melts in mournful lays, shall shortly want, that is need, the generous tear he pays. Then from his closing eyes thy form shall part, and the last pang shall tear thee from his heart. Life's idle business at one gasp be o'er, the muse forgot, and thou beloved no more. So her death reminds him of his death and reminds him of the death of poetry, but he still turns that into a very graceful last moment where he says, yeah, I'll die too. And I will forget the muse. But, um, and when that happens, you won't be loved anymore. But that's a way of saying, but you are loved now. Um, while I live, I still love you. It's an incredibly well done poem. It's moving and all the more surprising that it's fictional. That is, that it can be so moving when um, it's not that Pope, I mean, he may be talking about a real person, um, but that person's never been identified. Um, but just the idea that, yeah, we'll die too, but still, it, it's a poem about, about facing death and facing the death both of others and of yourself and of still thinking about that as why love is important, why the cordial love is important, and why self-righteousness and rank is not important. Um, and that's the connection between a poem like that and the satires. Okay, uh, the Dunciad. Enjoy.